brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shanice O'Mara. And I'm Emma Keeling. Coming up in this edition of Razor, I take us on a journey to Mars. Then the next big thing about ExoMars is we're looking for life. And nobody's really been um, looking in the same ways as us before, so we think we've got a much better chance of finding life than any of the previous missions. And I try on a jetpack. Um, I mean, that's all patented now, but there, there's a lot of cleverness to the geometry of the precise arrangement and layout of the engines to give you a sensation of the thrust in a way that minimises the load on you. So it now is just like you're leaning forward on a table. It's like ah. very, very effortless. Well, you're still here, so it can't have gone too badly. Well, let's just say the sky's the limit when it comes to the things I like to try. The myth of Icarus tells us about the danger of human ambition, but at its core, it speaks to another human desire, the desire to fly. Since the beginning of time, we've looked up at the sky and wondered what it might be like. Shinny, I think you've been reading far too much poetry in lockdown. Uh, I, I take it you have something special in mind for us here? No, do you know what I think it is? Because we've been locked down. I've been absolutely itching to travel. <laughs> That's what it is. And as a result, I thought very much about Richard Browning, the founder of Gravity Industries. He's the guy behind the innovation of the jetpack. And he let me have a go on this invention that he's built that pretty much allows him to fly all by himself. We went to the point and they're stuck up on the wall up here. Um, they are now heavily modified and ignore the one with a plastic tube in it. But those are originally just aluminium tubes with lots of holes drilled in them to make them lighter and a series of structures there to start playing with the geometry of where exactly on your arm should you put one or more engines. Mm. We had no idea about this. Yeah. Um, I had a theory that if you put one either side of your fist, that the net result of the thrust would feel like it was going up your arm. And it that kind of worked out, but we played around a lot with the geometry. Um, I mean, that's all patented now, but there, there's a lot of cleverness to the geometry of the precise arrangement and layout of the engines to give you a sensation of the thrust in a way that minimizes the load on you. So it now is just like you're leaning forward on a table. It's like ah. very, very effortless. But that was the early, early kind of starting point. Yeah, because you must have to use so much of your own muscle power just to kind of manage the power You'd think coming so. out. And the in the engines. early days, yes, but we've refined it now to where it is. There's, there's a fun experiment you can do um, where if you stand on some bathroom scales yeah. uh, and you register your weight and then you lean forward on your, let's say, your bathroom sink and you lean with enough force on your hands, just with your straight arms, that a third of your body weight is registering on the scales, that is what it feels like to fly. And you'll find that's not difficult. Tell us about this machine. Well, do you know what? It is surprisingly small and kind of, um, what would you call it? It's small, it's efficient, it's extremely noisy, but it's really effective in getting one man off the ground. The design of the actual engines are such that they're small and efficient and they provide the thrust to be able to push a person off the ground. Like it's literally like having two hair dryers in your hands and pointing the hair dryers down to the ground. And that force downwards by the air pushes a person up. And that's really the principle of how it works. I think I'm going to need a, a new hairdryer to try this at home or, or lose some weight, one or the other, which is not happening in lockdown either. And did you have a go, Shinny? I absolutely did. This is how it sounded. 
At this point, I have rockets strapped to my arms. And I must say, my heart was racing and all I could smell was jet fuel. It was really, really pungent. And I was terrified because these engines are really, really powerful and you don't realize until they actually get going. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely exhilarating. So at this point, Richard was standing by the side. He was throwing me instructions on what to do with the jet engines. And it was not easy to kind of follow him because, you know, at the end of the day, you've got this really powerful thing strapped to your body. Um, and so it was kind of a balance between trying to follow his instructions, but also not sort of uh, set myself on fire. <laughs> uh, now, I, I, did, I did have a little sneaky peek at um, uh, some of the vision of you <clears throat> fly, flying uh, mm. yesterday, as you say. I don't think I'm going to be catching on my a flight. Big toe. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be catching a flight with the shinny anytime soon because you were kind of hovering about an inch off the ground and going around in circles, I seem to believe. So it's actually quite tricky to operate. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit embarrassing for a fluid dynamicist to not get the jet streams right. I mean, I was absolutely hopeless um, because the I don't know if you can visualize, but like these downward jets coming out of the engines um, need to be put in the right place like you need to have this kind of tripod balance between the two jet engines and your weight and if you can get that tripod stand right then you know you're off just like Richard was um, and he did this amazing demo and he was so precise and kind of um, graceful through the air, which was completely not how my first go went, because I was basically getting all the jet streams um, mixed up. So that's why I was spinning. I was like in a in a vortex, essentially. I was creating my own tornado. That's what I was doing. So, Shinny, what does Richard actually want to accomplish with this jetpack? I mean, and where does the inspiration come for it? Do you know, he's such a true innovator because he always had a dream of flying. I think it runs through his family and he's just always had a fascination and wanted to meet that challenge. And um, I think he was doing it for the love of it, you know, just to be able to prove that it's possible. Yeah, so the, the, the inspiration really, it was a number of sources. So my entire family background was from the world of aviation and aeronautics. One grandfather was a civil pilot and a military pilot. Um, uh, the other grandfather used to run Britain's uh, helicopter, main helicopter manufacturer, now called Leonardo, it was then called Westlands. And my late father was an aeronautical engineer, so I guess it was in my blood. But I spent 16 years in the oil industry. Um, but I never lost the passion for flight and uh, building things and experimenting and having a dream and idea and not being afraid to go and explore quickly how to test it out. And I guess. I was also inspired by things like the ultramarathons I've done and you know the, the training I used to do with the Royal Marines, which taught me a lot about human capability. It is amazing when you take a step back and think, out of God knows how many billions of people there are now in the world, how many different roles they fulfil, from being pilots to you know to being surgeons to racing car drivers to helicopter pilots, whatever. It's amazing how adaptable the human mind and body is. So I had a hunch that you could train yourself to manipulate a form of propulsion not knowing at the time what that would be, but I just had this hunch that if I can hold myself in a gymnastic kind of planche, then surely if I swap out that support for a form of propulsion, I reckon I could fly. 
genuinely no other reason other than I thought it would be an interesting challenge and just uh, kind of Look messed where you around. Are today. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't usually happen when you start with an interesting idea. Nine times, nine and a half times out of ten, it usually proves to be an impossible goal that you were you know, kind of chasing after. But yeah, I guess we're an example every now and then if you have enough perseverance and follow, you know, honestly, a bit of a childish kind of dream. Uh, look where you get to. I mean, it wasn't inspired by the Iron Man character, but it is fun how it does look a bit like that now that we've you know, achieved where we've got to. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a remarkable journey that's by no means finished. And just being in this room, it kind of feels like even the impossible is possible. It's really inspiring here. Oh, it's fun going to schools. I mean, wherever we can, we try and do school talks and flight demonstrations, and it's especially fun with kids that uh, they don't need much encouragement to dream the supposedly impossible. And, you know, it, it, it's amazing when you really look at the big technology leaps. If I was to say 30 years ago I could have a little little you know, block of plastic and glass in my pocket that I could, if I know the right number, speak to two-thirds of the world's population or answer any, pretty much any question you can think of, you'd think that was witchcraft. <laughs> and yet that's now something that we ha all of us have in the form of a mobile phone. So mm. often the ludicrous dreaming almost like a child uh, can inspire where technology goes. So um, yeah, maybe this is a little example. The jetpack is actually available in Selfridges. So you can buy it for a quarter of a million pounds. So they're not cheap, but it's kind of interesting that they are going commercial and that you can purchase it. You know, I've had so much, so many problems with my scooter. So, you know, I can't imagine oh, no. what the laws will be around, you know, trying to fly a jetpack around London. Human beings have been fascinated by Mars for centuries. Since 2012, NASA's Curiosity rover has been traversing the red planet to see if it had supported microbial life. I went to speak to the ExoMars team who are attempting to search deeper with the Rosalind Franklin rover, which will be launched in 2022. What is the fascination with going to Mars? I mean, we've been doing it for decades now. I know, I, I, it does puzzle me, but I must say, doing this story, I'm far more informed although I still don't get why you want to actually go there. But look, I guess it's just, it's the next place to explore. You know, you gaze up and you wonder, oh, can we get there? It's a curiosity thing. And also, obviously, it's a competition to be first. A little bit like the first sea explorers, you know, what's over that next wave. But come back to the present. I mean, technology is constantly improving. And the time is right for a launch this year around um, July, August. Now, for an exped expedition to Mars, a launch window opens every 25 months. That's when Earth and Mars are close together. And the journey takes the least amount of rocket fuel and time. Now, at the core of the ExoMars mission is the Rosalind Franklin rover. It's an autonomous machine that's going to be traversing the landscape on Mars, gathering lots of information. Now, it was meant to launch this year, but the parachute problems, and obviously that's very necessary when you're landing on Mars, that has meant they've had to postpone it. But it'll happen in 2022, as I said. And I spoke to Abby Hutty. Now, she's the lead structures engineer on the ExoMars rover. So this is your one of your prototypes? Yeah, we call this one Bruno. Oh. Uh, so meet Bruno. <laughs> he looks a little bit like the Rosalind Franklin rover. More um, of a sibling rather than a twin. Yes, definitely. And he's the one that we're demonstrating the autonomous navigation on ah. at the moment. So we use him in this facility to take the right images with his cameras to get the right kind of uh, contrast and images back into his computers mm -hmm. and he's watching us <laughs> he is uh, and then he will be able to perform all of the drives so he's got all of the right locomotion system and wheels on board so let, let's get this straight you know um, Rosalind 
when she lands on Mars, the rover Roslyn, she's on her own, she's autonomous. You guys aren't you know, dialing up and saying, right, go and do this, go and do that. There's a lot of control from the Earth, but mm. to maximise the efficiency of the time that we have on Mars, we've tried to make her as autonomous as possible. So mm. we'll be able to give her a destination to drive to. It can be up to two days' drive, uh, not within her field of view, and she'll be able to execute that drive all by herself uh, in case, unless she comes across something So you didn't actually unexpected. get to see um, and Rosalind herself. Phone home when she gets there. But what it? was it like seeing the machine that you How did see? How many times have you said phone home? No, Rosalind was uh, <laughs> otherwise disposed, uh, indisposed, I should say, not disposed. <laughs> I hope she's not disposed. <laughs> you don't want to trash it just yet. Exactly. Not if, you're gonna, not if you're planning to go in 2022. Yeah, well, look, she's been cleaned, decontaminated, tested, a lot of that going on. Um, well, you know, she's a lady. She likes to be ready for these sorts of things. So, no, I didn't meet her, but I met all the boys. Now, these are all the prototype um, rovers. Now, I must say, when I first saw Bruno, uh, I mean, he was only travelling about a centimetre a second. I mean, that is the speed I complete, 100 metres, by the way. Um, but it was, I don't know what I expected. I mean, most of the amazing equipment is sort of right inside the machine because it has to be protected. Um, and, you know, I was chatting to Abby at the Mars Yard, which is at the Airbus Defence and Space in Stevenage, which is north of London. And in this place, it's, it's visually accurate. Um, and the yard is, is like a large sand pit with rocks. And that's where they do all the testing of the wheels, the other equipment, such as the cameras and uh, the autonomous navigation. And they've got this huge, long picture of Mars terrain all along the back wall, which was taken by NASA's Curiosity rover. So, so yeah, it's a pretty cool place to work. So what kind of things is Rosalind actually going to be recording when she's out there? Well, she's looking for signs of life. So uh, she's wanting to send that information back. And it's like, well, hang on, how, do you get it? how is she getting that information? Well, she's going to drill down into the surface. Now, Abby explains here exactly how this drill will work. Uh, and then it's going to sort of be popped into a little lab type drawer and, and analysed. And that information goes back to Earth. But first, let's talk about the drill. Nobody's really been um, looking in the same ways as us before, so we think we've got a much better chance of finding life than any of the previous missions, primarily because we've got a drill on ah. our rover. So when previous missions have taken a, a drill, we just mean like a dentist drill. It, it rotates and it takes a sample, but it's only from the length of the sample tool, so maybe four centimetres um, from the surface. And we know that the surface is so bombarded with radiation that actually you wouldn't be able to find life at the surface. Because it's been wiped and away. It would have been so badly deteriorated just from that radiation that even if it had been alive at the surface, you wouldn't even be able to recognise it as having been life. So our drill mm -hmm. uh, can actually drill up to two metres below the surface, wow. so like taller than us, so but below the ground. Three, there's, what, is it... How, how does so that, that's not two yeah, so there's, there's four segments inside this drill here. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like a pile driving machine. So it flips up to vertical, uh, rotates one, drills into the ground, and then the next one slots in and then drills that into Lever. the ground. It just in. seems so complex for something that's relatively small. It's doing a lot of different things. Yeah, and there's a lot of risks attached, as you can imagine, uh, on this mission. I mean, 100%, there's everything can go wrong at, at every different point. I went and spoke to Professor Andrew Coates. Now, he's ExoMars principal investigator of the PanCam. How about that for a title? And he explained to me. Wow. Yeah. So, and he explained to me all the various risks attached to a mission like this. 
Once it's on its trajectory to Mars, it will uh, be in a relatively safe place. But then it's got to land on Mars, and that's the most dangerous part of any Mars mission. Um, because of Mars's thin atmosphere, it's a real technical challenge to actually land on the surface of Mars. You've got to slow down through this thin atmosphere. So you do that initially with um, heat um, uh, protective tiles, uh, and that they go up to very high temperature in the, in the high atmosphere. Then parachutes, including the biggest parachute ever to go to Mars, a 35 meter diameter parachute, will glide down on that. And then it, um, it, uh, the uh, parachutes are ejected and it flies down to the surface of Mars on a um, on Kazachuk, which is a um, uh, which is the Russian landing system that has retro rockets, which mean that it glides safely down to the surface. There's a lot of things in that which have got to go right. You know, the launch, the landing. About half of the missions to Mars fail, but we're confident that this one will work because it's been very uh, sort of carefully tested to make sure that uh, that everything is working well. Um, so we're confident that we'll get to the surface and start, um, you know roll off the platform um, and then start making its measurements. You know what I love about space travel is the amount of innovation and invention and ingenuity that goes into creating a vehicle that's going to do that journey. But we get so much benefit here on Earth as a result of all that research, don't yeah, we? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's quite surprising. There's a massive list. I went looking for it. A really long list of, of all these things that they've had to create um, you know, for these missions to the moon and to Mars and, and other places like that. So I've just got a few here. Memory oh, phones. Yeah, exactly. Camera phones, uh, scratch-resistant lenses, CAT scans, LEDs, la landmine removal. Um, what else? We, um, foil blankets, you know, those ones that keep you warm. W water yeah. purification, uh, dust busters. Oh, my mother would be so thrilled about that one. And, and exercise, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things, right? Yeah. Apparently. And then one of the ones sort of related to, to Mars travel, uh, when NASA puts out their rover uh, in this year, um, they're going to be testing making oxygen from the red planet's carbon dioxide atmosphere. So that will pave the way for human interplanetary interplanetary exploration but it might help us here on on earth when you consider all the carbon dioxide we're putting yeah, out there definitely I mean, it's so fascinating how that happens because you know often people are up in arms about sort of the amount we spend on space research but it really does benefit us here yeah i think you know if, I, I guess for some people if, if you're a scientist you know and i did speak to a scientist and I, I told them about this this mars story i was doing and she's like you know what i'd love some of those you know millions and billions of dollars to go into research here on earth so i i get that but um yeah I, it's, it's always a fight over funding in science isn't it yeah and it actually justifies the 50% success rate of these Mars missions, because it's not about the destination and getting there. It's more about the journey, isn't it? Yeah, although that really surprised me, you know, only a 50% success rate, because you because you always think, oh, well, no, everything we see is always a success. But, you know, there's so many different failures. I mean, some of them haven't even gone off the ground. Some of them have broken up in Earth's orbit. Others have broken up in Mars orbit. <laughs> and then others like the, you know, the Beagle 2, it landed, um, the spacecraft landed in 2003, but only three of its four solar panels deployed. And and they think it might have been gathering data on Mars, but they, it just couldn't send it back. So that was sort of put down um, as a failure. Although I'm sure if you talk to the scientists involved in that, they'd say, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but yeah. I don't think there is such thing as failure <laughs> in science. It's just kind of teaching you things you didn't know oh, now already. look, that's a good way to put it. I'm going to start applying that to, you know, when I get my review done at work. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's always a good one for getting out of uh, little mishaps. <laughs> mishaps, yes. I'm sorry, my rocket exploded. Oh, it's just a mishap. <laughs> Scientists really seem convinced that there's life on Mars. I mean, first of all, what are the signs that they're so convinced about? And um, what does that mean for us if we do actually confirm that well I, the reason they think there, there might be signs of life there is that you know around four billion years ago earth and, and mars were pretty similar uh obviously things have, have changed rather dramatically but that's quite a long uh, period of time um so and and i guess that also points to well if if there are signs of life now when i say signs of life i'm not talking about the fact they're going to find a large dinosaur fossil or anything like that these are like the building blocks of life you know this could be an amino acid this is how tiny we're looking at here or even just well, water, well right? yeah and if they can if they can find that then it's like well maybe this is on planets elsewhere so you know they're constantly sort of trying to see you know how do we come to be here what can we learn from other planets because we don't know what our future is going to be the way we're going at the moment either but I guess I mean if, if from a personal point of view I mean I, you know we talked about the spending um so far and, and I think you know yes it's wonderful having that innovation um expanding our knowledge and and seeing what else is out there in our solar system and rather than us just floating around in a large black hole but um, you do wonder about the, you know, the politicians coming in here, you know, the, the grabbing of the minerals, the exploitation of the planet. And I also wonder about a little bit about the exploitation of, of people going to Mars. Yes, they, they will be volunteers. They're not going to be forced into it. But there are so many unknowns. I mean, you know, the radiation is so intense on that planet. So, you know, there's a, a limit to how much radiation a, a human being can take. They reckon, it, you know, a, a year's worth of, of radiation that we could deal with on Earth. That would be done and dusted in about 19 days on Mars. So there's so much more. And everybody's like, let's get there, let's get there, let's go. We want to be there in 25 years. Yeah. But, yeah, there's a lot of sort of ethical and, and sort of philosophical discussions to be had. There seems to be some kind of space race going on and everyone's trying to be the first person. But this research has been going on for quite a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, it's always like that's the, you know, the going to the moon and landing on the moon. It's, it's exactly the same. And yes, they've landed rovers on Mars. Um, and and now it's it's finding that life. You know, as um, Professor Andrew Coates said to me, he said, you know, this is Nobel Peace Prize stuff or, you know, Nobel Laureate. I'm going to win a Nobel if I can prove that there has been life on Mars. So it's it, there's always that I need to be the first. But it's all pro also pretty exciting to be involved in such an incredible uh, you know, project like this as well. Mars research has been happening for a couple of decades now, yet there seems to be such a race to kind of be the first people to be on Mars. What's that about? You know, just the effort to get something on Mars is quite incredible. And there's about, you know, mm. four different launches happening um, this year. And, uh, you know, now Curiosity has this little um, digger that sort of goes to about six centimetres. The ExoMars people wanted to be the first to go deeper. So, it's, you know, it's all about going two metres deep with their drill. Um, but now, of course, they're going in 2022. So does this mean that NASA's new rover, um, you know, ha will have that capability and that they'll find the signs of life first? Well, you know, who, who knows? So, yes, everybody's keen to get there. It's a good look. It's a good look if you can, you know, on the on, on the world stage, if you can, you know, get something to Mars and you look all very important. Um, but, uh, yeah, at the moment, you, you'd have to say that, you know, China and, and NASA probably have the edge on that one this year. Got the edge. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Razor. Remember, if you want to watch the stories we talked about today, go to cgtneurope.com and type in Razor.
Bye. Thank you.